We can work with that. Well, it's good to be with you. Our scripture reading this morning, uh, we're continuing in our series in the book of Exodus, comes from Exodus. We're going to be reading selections from chapters 7 through 10. Uh, This is a mercy to you all and to me that I'm not reading four chapters of scripture for you before we start a sermon. Uh, So I would encourage you to just follow along on the screens. Uh, I'm going to be jumping around through the passages to try and get us a bit of a sense, an overview of what these chapters are trying to communicate. So we'll start in chapter 7, verse 1, and then we'll be bouncing around. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites." And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore... At this time tomorrow, 
I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across all the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our text uh, takes selections from the infamous passage of Egypt, the plagues, uh, featured in movies and stories. And when I first heard that I was scheduled to preach on this passage, I was excited because it is an iconic, powerful passage. And then I realized that I would be preaching on the plagues on Mother's Day. And immediately I felt sick, and I have still felt sick from that moment until now. Uh, So let's pray that the Lord can do a miracle uh, and make a passage on the plagues be a blessing on Mother's Day. Would you pray with me before we begin our time in Scripture this morning? Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are good all the time, that you do great and powerful things, that you are so much bigger than the circumstances of our lives You're so much bigger than the things that we have carried in with us here this morning, the things that still weigh on our hearts, the things that frustrate us and seem just not to budge. God, we thank you that you are bigger than these things, that these things are not too hard for you. So we pray this morning that you would speak into the areas of our lives where we need to see that you are God, that we need to know that you are the Lord and there is none like you in all the earth. God, would you do that this morning? Would you be greater than my words and my abilities? Would you speak so that your people might listen? We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you be here and be present? 
It's in your Son's name, Father, and by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day uh, to start things off to those of you who are uh, mothers here with us, mothers watching at home. We are grateful for you. Uh, we are continuing on, as I said, in our series in the book of Exodus, a series that we're calling Exodus from Captivity to Covenant, where we're focusing on God's delivering his people from the soul-crushing oppression of Egypt, and not just delivering them from that, but delivering them into relationship with him, into a specific relationship called a covenant, a kind of relationship with the deepest promises, the greatest privileges, and the most serious penalties for unfaithfulness, all of which directed at bringing a people, bringing all people out of our spiritual and physical darkness and into the light of relationship and flourishing with God. We continue that story of God's deliverance from captivity into a covenant relationship with him today in the passage of the plagues where God's power and love starts to really come on display so that all might know him. But the way that that power and love comes on display in this passage certainly raises some questions for us as we hear it. Uh, we see in uh, chapter 7, verses 4, that God was going to bring miraculous and terrible acts of judgment on Egypt and on its leadership. And despite the terrible things that would come, its leader, Pharaoh, would not relent. He would not release the people that he was oppressing in cruel slavery. And our text says that Pharaoh's refusal will happen not just because Pharaoh was hard-hearted and strong, but because God would actually harden his heart further. And somehow that further hardening of Pharaoh's heart is only going to serve God's purposes. It's only going to reveal who God is. But why does God do it this way? Why would his deliverance have to come through severe judgments? Why would it come through hardening someone's heart? These are hard questions. And to untangle some of these curiosities and how they actually reveal who the Lord is that we may know him. I want to focus our time together in this passage on a few points. First, the shock of stubbornness that we see in our text. Second, the surprise of the goal of our text. And finally, the freedom of God's control. The shock of stubbornness, the surprise of the goal, and the freedom of control. First, the shock of stubbornness. In these early chapters, God performs signs and judgments that are so familiar to us now that it can be easy to be unawed by them, unimpressed, not shocked, and yet each one of these would have been a genuinely shocking, world-changing experience. Each one in and of itself was a devastating catastrophe that would have set any country back years, decades, centuries, all by itself, and Egypt receives 10 of these in a matter of weeks. This is chaos, right? These are devastations upon devastations. For example, the first plague, the plague of blood that we read at the earliest part of the passage, the primary water source for the people of Egypt and their economic backbone, their country was built around prosperity that grew out of trade, commerce, production from the Nile River. That entity was turned into blood. There is no water to drink. There is no water for crops. There is no water for washing. All the fish died. An entire segment of economy built on fishing and the trade of fish has just collapsed. The country would have been in shambles. 
It's not too hard to remember back to 2008 when the housing market fell apart in the United States. Just one segment of the economy fell apart and instantly the whole economy went into depression into a time of recession, at least. So it's not hard to imagine how something like this would have had a huge impact on the country, and yet that's only one plague. It's only seven days later before something else just as devastating happens. There are more plagues added on here. For example, the plague of hail in chapter 9. Any and all Egyptian livestock that are in the fields are killed. They're wiped out. They're no more. On top of that, there is a plague of locusts in chapter 10 that come and eat everything that was left by the hail, the things that the hail had not killed. There would be mass food shortages. Other sectors of the economy have collapsed. The plagues were a shocking, extinction-level kind of event for one country. That would have been a real shock to observe. And yet, the real shock in our text is not just these events, but the responses to them. First and foremost, the response of Pharaoh. We might naturally be shocked that the country's leader would respond not with acceptance that this has changed everything and that now I have to act. Now I have to respond to this crisis. Not with a desire to save his own people even, but with stubbornness, with hard-heartedness as the text says. Think about the shock of this. Your society is falling apart. There is nothing left. There is no food. There is no water. There is no commerce. There is no health. There is nothing. And your response is to be stubborn in the face of this and to pretend like you have something left to fight with? What are you doing, Pharaoh? Right? If you're the Egyptian people, his popularity, his approval rating is zero. If there could be negative polling for Pharaoh, there would have been negative opinion polling. And yet we read that God said he is the one that would actually bring this about. He is the one that would bring this shocking response of stubbornness and hard-heartedness. God is the very one who makes him hard-hearted. And so we might feel shocked that God would do that. We can feel indignant. How could you do that to someone? Why would God do that? Isn't that unfair? But the greater shock of Pharaoh's stubbornness is that God doesn't bring it about in order to answer those questions. God doesn't show a hard-hearted Pharaoh in order to satisfy our curiosity. If he was doing it for curiosity, he would have told Pharaoh, presumably, why he was doing that, that we might understand how the will of God interacts with human will, but our passage never says God ever tells Pharaoh that he's hardening his heart. God's not trying to answer a curiosity question here. God does this hardening of heart, the text says, so that all people would know him. It was not so that we might know how he works, but so that we might know the one who works. That's why he does this. That's what may shock us. If we look back to chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, right before the plague of the locusts, God says, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. God says he does this. Why? To satisfy our curiosity, to teach us simply some information about how he works. No, it says he does these things so that we may 
know him. Now, that might not be what you most want out of that text this morning. You might most want your curiosities answered. You might want to know the inner workings of God's mind. But his stated purpose in this text is not that you might know how his mind works, but that you might know him, that you might be in relationship with him. Pharaoh's stubbornness is about letting us know God, the one who delivers It's about knowing the God who fights for you, who works for you, who stands up for you. God doesn't want to give you a piece of information about him. He wants to give you him. He doesn't want to give you something from him. He's not content to just let you know something more about him. He is not content for you to have just a little more control over how you act. He is not content for you to have just a little more power, just a little more understanding of how to get approval, a little more understanding of how to get comfort. He wants you to have him, not something less. That's why God calls his relationship with the church the relationship of a groom to a bride because there is meant to be this deep belonging to one another, this deep having of one another, this exclusive wholeness. And that's what we lost in sin. We didn't lose our ability to think like God. We lost God. That's what he wants to give us back, himself, The challenge of this text for you this morning may be, what do you most want from God? Do you most want to know why God has done what he has done in your life? Or do you want to know him? Do you most want an answer from him or do you want him? If you're honest with your heart this morning, which is it? Which is it? which is not to say that we do wrong to want to know, to ask the why questions when things happen in our life. But God wants to give you something more than just an answer, something more than just an explanation for how he works so that you can take that off by yourself and figure it out. He wants to give you himself back in relationship. He wants to give you back a world where you have God as your father, where you are no longer orphans in this world. He wants to give you back a world where you have God as a father who cares for you, who provides for you, who gives you his approval and says he delights in who you are today. He wants to give you back a sense of his great love, that he picks you up when you fall down, that he comforts you when you are hurting. He wants to give you a world where you have a God who teaches you the way to go and goes with you on that way. See, he wants to bring you out of the thousand different ways that you are captive to trying to live in this world like you have to replace God, not have God. Where you're living like Pharaoh, trying to replace God's power, his control, the comfort that he brings, and suffering day in and day out as you try, but so used to suffering that you're just committed to sticking with it. Don't you see what God wants to do for you? Do you see what his goal is in this passage? That he wants to soften the hardness of our hearts. 
our hearts toughened by fear and sin against the tenderness of knowing God as your Savior, as your Father. Soften a hard heart convinced that this God can't exist or that if he could, he wouldn't help me or he shouldn't help me. Don't you see how God wants to free you from that? Free you from constantly having to live like you are an orphan in this world, where all I have to do is perform and I'll be fine. I do it myself and I'll be fine. I work harder, I figure it out, I get better connections, I make better relationships, I put in more hours, I try again when I fail. Don't you see that that's captivity? That it's not that we don't work hard, but that we are slaves to working hard to save ourselves. God wants to be the one who saves you. He wants to give you back a father who provides for you. He wants to stop having you be poor, spiritually poor orphans and make you wealthy, wealthy children. You see that that's what he wants for you. His desire is to soften your heart, to give you himself, which brings us to our second point, the surprise of this goal, and I think the surprise of God's goal of giving people to know him, again, comes out right away in our passage in chapter 7, verses 5 and following. God says, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He doesn't say, and just Israel will know that I am the Lord. Hold on. Egypt is the entire reason we're here. Pharaoh's oppression is the entire reason that this book is being written, and yet God wants these people to know him. He wants the people who are enslaving Israel. He wants the oppressors, the hard-hearted people, to know him, to be in relationship with him. That, that's what God wants? That doesn't feel Right, and yet that is getting at the essence of the surprise of the gospel in Christianity because Christianity is not a religion for the cleaned up, for those who have it together. Christianity is for those who have finally realized that I can't clean up enough, that I never could, and that God has realized and knew far before I ever could see that that was not possible and has made a way that I might not have to do those things myself. It is not that you come already perfected, that you never have done anything wrong, but that you find redemption for your wrongdoing. This is what God wants to do. God wants to do more than simply liberate one people in Exodus. He wants to liberate two. He wanted to do more than simply cancel out a people that were in the wrong. He wanted to redeem them. How countercultural is that in our world right now? where you can be wrong and redeemed, not just wrong and canceled, which doesn't mean that you don't repent, which doesn't mean that you don't make restitution, but that you could actually be redeemed and not just canceled out. This is actually God's way. He is multifaceted and multipurpose. God is not one-dimensional. He is not just all justice and no mercy, nor is he all mercy and no justice. He is perfectly both. He is too dynamic for just one or the other. He is mercy and justice. This is the way, just like in the Mandalorian, right? If God was a Mandalorian, he would say mercy and justice. This is the way. It's not one or the other. It's both, and he is perfectly capable of doing both. At the same time, 
even when we don't understand how that works, even when we don't understand how those two fit together. And, and a perfect example of this, the ultimate example of this, is the cross where both mercy and justice come out at one time because there in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, which represented us there, God both punished the wickedness of sin. Whose sin? No, not Jesus' sin. Our sin that separated us from God. That's justice. And at the same time, he redeemed us from the alienation of our slavery to sin by showing us mercy. At the cross, God accomplishes both mercy and justice. Towards who? Towards the righteous? No, towards sinners. Towards the hard-hearted, towards oppressors. It's not just one or the other. It's not just a punishment for sin but no reconciliation. And it's not just forgiveness without really making amends. God wants true justice and true mercy. Both were accomplished on the cross and both are now reckoned to us simply by grace when we believe in him. See, both the plagues and the cross are trying to show us that God wants to do more than we think to ask for. God wants to do more than we think to ask for. We may just want God to fix the relationship in our lives. Maybe if we're a mother to fix the relationship with our children. Maybe if we're children to fix the relationship with our mother, with our friends, whatever it may be. Maybe we just want God to make work a little better, to get rid of some of the toxicity there, to help us advance. Maybe we want God to make school better, to help us improve the grades that we have, the kind of friends that we have. God wants to do a lot more than just that. He wants to give you more than you're asking, not less. He wants to draw you near and give you not something from him, but him. That you might have God from whom all these things come. Though the way he does that may not fit with our understanding of how those things ought to work. The good news, though, is that God is not waiting on you to understand how he fits the pieces of the puzzle together to put them together. God isn't waiting on you to understand or give permission in order for him to give you more than you're asking for, any more than he was waiting for the Egyptians to consent for him to save them. God is ready, he is able, he is in control, and he is committed to doing more that you might know him that you might stop settling for being orphans and know God as your father. He's in control. And that brings us to our third and final point, the freedom of his control. Because a critical component of God's plan to bring people back to a saving knowledge of knowing him, of knowing God as their father, is his control to actually make that happen. Where does that come out? We see it very early on again in how God tells Moses and Aaron and through them tells the audience that he will harden Pharaoh's heart against letting his people go. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Again, God doesn't tell Pharaoh. He's not trying to answer a curiosity here, but he does tell someone. He is trying to do something by letting people in on this. He tells them so that everyone might know that they were set free, not because Pharaoh finally gave up, but because God said it was time. 
God wants us to see through this passage his control over these things. This is showing us that Pharaoh is not the one in control. The most powerful leaders, the most powerful systems in our world, in our lives, are not the ones that are in control. God is the one that is in control. He tells us this so that there would be no mistake about who is God, about who has power. So that people would have no doubt when the hard times came about who was in control, about whether God would still be who he said he would be when he told Moses and Aaron to go tell the people that this is what would happen. So that when Pharaoh refused to give them their freedom for the first time after hundreds and hundreds of years, they hear that freedom might come and Pharaoh says no, so that they might know that God was in control. So that when the plagues got worse and worse and Pharaoh still didn't relent, they might know that God was in control. When they were still slaves after disaster upon disaster, when the country was in tatters and life was hanging on by a thread, in that kind of situation, in that kind of world, in a pandemic on steroids kind of world, that they might know that you and I might know that God is in control. So too in our lives, we can know when the hard times come, when disappointments come upon disappointments, when more trials come than we feel like we have the energy for, when betrayals come into our life, when false accusations come into our life, when devastating true accusations come into our life, when sins crop up in our hearts, when the falls multiply, when the faults multiply, when we're still in the same predicament this morning that we found ourselves in before the pandemic began, we can know that God is the one who is in control. And he's in control because his deliverance never had anything to do with your power, with my power, with anyone else's. As with Pharaoh's stubbornness, these things just become a part of his plan. Just become part of how he reveals who he is to you. Do you see the freedom that God's control brings into your life? It means that you don't have to be God over all these things. You don't have to prepare for all the contingencies. You don't have to face all these insurmountable obstacles. You don't have to be one that tackles all the unknowns. What are the situations you're trying to control in your life right now? I want you to think about that. Take a second. What's the situation that comes into your mind? I'm trying to control this and it's not working. By faith... You know a God. You have a Father with the control to take care of all of that, no matter how little you understand about what he's doing, no matter how long it seems like he's taking. Israel waited 400 years. How long have you been waiting? No matter how long it seems it's been, no matter how much you mess up along the way, no matter how unworthy you feel of God actually drawing near to you, of how you feel like it's been too much, God. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've said too many things. I've done too many things. This is it. You shouldn't bring me back from this. No matter how far, no matter how hard your heart, our text says, God is the one who is in control. And he is working to do more than we would ask. That's what our passage shows us, that Israel didn't have to overcome the greatest power the world had known at that time in order to be free. They didn't have to convince a powerful, hard-hearted, stubborn ruler to let them go because it didn't depend on them. It didn't depend on them. It doesn't depend on you. That doesn't mean that you're not involved, but it means it doesn't depend on you. 
and gives you the freedom to not have to be God. God was always going to be the one who set them free. He was never going to be the one who needed something from them to free them. Just like he says at the beginning of our passage, he's going to be the one to do it through no power of our own, but through his. That's where we find freedom in the Christian life and setting down all our attempts to be God, all our attempts to replace God in some way, to make up for what we feel like is his absence and to instead find him as our God and Father in control of all the things that you can't change, working all things for the good and doing more, even though you don't understand what he's doing at that time. He doesn't need you to understand. He wants to give you more. He's going to do it anyway because that's who he says he is. That's who our passage reveals him to be, that you might know this God, the God who gives us not something from him, but him, the entirety of his self, who does more than we think to ask and who does it all, not by our power and control, not because we made it happen, but because he made it happen. That's the God we have. That's the God of Exodus. So in closing, I just want to give you two ways to start applying some of this knowing who God is in your life today and this coming week. The first is to take hold of this God if you don't know him. Know him because you're not going to find someone else like him. Receive his mercy and his justice, not just one or the other. Receive not just something from him. Take him. Receive more than you think to ask because you're worth more. That's what the gospel says. Christianity is not a settling for less. It is God coming to you, pleading with you to stop settling for less. Stop being deceived that these things that you're chasing that you think will give you life are actually taking life from you along the way, are asking you to sacrifice of yourself that you might save yourself. God isn't doing that. He is asking you to set down your striving to let him be God, just like he always meant to be. That was the deception that we breathed in in the beginning in the garden, that somehow we had to replace God, that somehow we had to be like him, that somehow there was something wrong with just being a child. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a child of God. Receive that this morning. Take hold of that inheritance. If you are a Christian, take hold of it anew this morning. Take him not something less than him, not just a better financial situation, not just a lack of tension in your relationships. Find him. Don't settle for less. He wants to give you that and more. Jesus says, what father, if a child asks him for bread, would give him a stone? And if Jesus, God himself is saying that, why do we think that when he asks, that we ask him for something bread, the equivalent of bread in our lives, that he is going to give us a stone? It may not work out the way that we think it should, but that doesn't mean he's not working. It doesn't mean he doesn't want to give us more. It just means we don't understand. Let go of some of your need to understand this morning, your need to have understanding be God in your life and let God be God in your life. Secondly, take. Take the lack of control in your life to the one who alone has control. Take it back to your God and Father. Relax your death grip on the steering wheel of life. Stop trying to control all these things. Stop trying to save yourself to somehow contribute to these things. We need to stop with our kind of Fred Flintstone theology. 
I don't know how many of y'all saw the Flintstones cartoons. It was before my time, but I've seen it. So I testify that you could have seen it too. But Fred Flintstone drives a car powered by what? The sun? No, his feet. That's the kind of Christian theology we have a lot of time. God, give me the car, give me the outer shell, and I'll use my feet. I'll get us there. No, we need to stop with that. We need, and moms, you're going to give me an amen, we need minivan theology. We need the theology of being taken somewhere of more cup holders than you can count, right? Of lavish doors that power open and close, right? This is the kind of theology we need to have, right? And in a minivan, sometimes your parent takes you somewhere you don't want to go, but somewhere that's still good for you to go. They take you places that you ask them to take you. And they do that, not like Uber, not for money, but because they love you. We need more of that kind of theology where we let go of the control of having to peddle ourselves there and take it to God and say, God, could you take me here? And he's going to involve you in that because he doesn't set his children on the sideline, but let him be God in that. Because with him and him alone do you get to have the freedom of having God as a father, relying on someone who has power to do it and not needing that power yourself, not being a slave to trying to replace God through your own power. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this is who you are, that you've revealed who you are, that we might know you, that we might understand that you are always working to give us more than we would ask because you are generous. You're doing that even when we doubt you, even when we're afraid. God, we confess the ways that we have wanted something more from you than we want you the ways that we have just wanted a little more money, the ways we've just wanted a little more time, a little more intimacy, a little more attraction, a little more freedom, a little more advancement. God, would you help us to stop this a little more kind of craving and to start desiring a lot more with you? God, be our Father and move in power in our lives exactly where we need you to move because we can't do it on our own and we know that you know that. So would you meet us, Lord? Open our eyes to the things that we don't even know that we need. Give us to change because we have the one who can change us. In your name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand as you're able and to sing a song of response here to this God who has given us to know him. Let's sing.